almost exactly 30 years ago, in March 1991, Robert Maxwell made a triumphant entry into Manhattan Harbor. And he was on board his yacht, his enormous yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, named after his youngest daughter. And he'd come to buy the New York Daily News. And the New York Daily News was kind of like the sun and the evening standard rolled into one. And whoever owned the New York Daily News wielded enormous clout. Uh, it's no coincidence that several times during the 1980s, Donald Trump, had tr a figure who in many respects, Maxwell kind of foreshadows, Trump had uh, repeatedly tried to buy the New York Daily News as a springboard for his political career. And when the ink is dry on the contract and Maxwell is installed as the new owner of the New York Daily News, something astonishing happens. The Cardinal Archbishop of New York offers prayers of thanks. People break into spontaneous dancing in the street. And when Maxwell that night goes to the most fashionable Chinese restaurant in Manhattan, the entire restaurant, all the diners, get up and give him a standing ovation. And just a few days before this, Maxwell is engaged in negotiation with the then proprietor of the Daily News, who's a man called Jim Hogue. And at one point in the negotiations, something happens that makes a great impression on Jim Hogue. Maxwell's butler brings him his lunch on a silver tray. And Hogue is busy doing something else and he's a bit distracted. And he suddenly hears this enormous crash and he looks round and Maxwell has picked up this silver tray and just dropped it on the ground. And crockery goes everywhere and food and broken glass and whatever. And Maxwell goes, it's cold, bring me something else. And what makes the most impression on Jim Hogue is that neither Maxwell nor the butler behave as if anything remotely unusual has gone on. But it does beg a number of questions about Maxwell, or rather one question in particular. How did he get to be like this? Nine months later, just nine months after he's been fated in New York, Maxwell disappears off the back of the Lady Ghislaine in circumstances that have never really been fully explained. And two weeks later, it turns out that there's a 750 million pound debt in his companies and that 350 million pounds has effectively been looted from the mirror pension funds, thereby depriving a lot of people of the prospect of a tranquil and reasonably prosperous retirement. And from that moment on, Maxwell's name was forever blackened. And even today, 30 years later, it's still a kind of byword for corruption and deceit, which of course begs the biggest question of all. What went so horribly wrong? And since the loose theme of tonight's talk is storytelling, I thought I'd tell a couple of stories about Maxwell that may possibly answer one, possibly both of these questions. Maxwell himself always said that he never actually had a childhood. I was never young. I never had that privilege. And in a way, you can understand what he meant. He was actually born in a small town in the east of what was then Czechoslovakia, 
which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, which had a very large Jewish population, small town, but Jewish, large Jewish population. Maxwell's family were Jewish. And he was brought up very devout Orthodox family. But when he's 16 in 1939, he sets off essentially to find his fortune. And whilst he's away during the war, three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather, all die in Auschwitz. And this really is the, the prism that you have to see Maxwell's life through. For years, he denied being Jewish at all. Um, and indeed, one of the reasons he chose the name Robert Maxwell was because it had no, as he saw it, whiff of Semitism about it. But when he did very belatedly discover, rediscover his Judaism in the mid 1980s, you have this sense that he was haunted, swamped almost, by all this banked up survivor guilt. Throughout the war, Maxwell had dreamt of getting hold of a commodity, which he'd be able to obtain for next to no money. That would be in huge demand after the war. And in 1946, he was sitting in Berlin where he was running an allied newspaper, which was designed to reintroduce Berliners to the joys of democracy. And one day this man walks in who's the biggest publisher of scientific journals in Germany. And he says, can you help me? I have this terrible problem. No one has published any of my journals during the war. And I have this huge backlog of stuff. And Maxwell's first instinct was to kick him out because that was pretty much Maxwell's first instinct with anybody. And then he thinks to himself, hold on a minute. Maybe the thing I've been dreaming of has just landed in my lap. And the commodity was knowledge. And it was an absolutely brilliant idea. And by the time that by the mid late 1950s, Maxwell has become the biggest publisher of scientific journals in the world. And let's just say for the sake of argument that Maxwell had died in 1961, rather than 1991, he would be remembered very differently. I mean, it's easy to say, and it's some truth in it, that Maxwell was only ever kind of driven by expediency and that he always had one eye fixed on his profit margins. That's true. But every so often, the other one would give off this kind of idealistic glint. And I think Maxwell did really care about the scientific research he was involved in. And actually, by disseminating the research of a lot of scientists, he actually he paved the way for a number of key breakthroughs in medicine, chemistry, physics, and so on. But, and it's a very big but, Maxwell was obsessed with getting a newspaper, owning a newspaper. And it was this that brought him into, within the, into contact, as it were, with Rupert Murdoch. And that both Maxwell and Murdoch for almost 30 years were locked in this kind of titanic struggle to be essentially the world's biggest media mogul. And Maxwell came to see Murdoch 
really is his nemesis because every time Maxwell tried to buy a newspaper, Murdoch would snatch it from underneath his nose and Maxwell become more and more furious um, and, and more and more obsessed. I, I mean, I, incidentally, I don't think Murdoch saw Maxwell in those terms. I think as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was this kind of perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. And it drove Murdoch nuts that they were always being mentioned in the same breath. And of course they shared the same initials. And it's not until 1984 that Maxwell finally succeeds in buying a newspaper. He buys the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, the whole stable of mirror titles. Uh, it's no coincidence that uh, Murdoch doesn't want the mirror and indeed wouldn't have been allowed to get it because he already owned the sun. And it's easy to forget that actually to begin with, Maxwell was a rather successful and indeed popular proprietor of the mirror. And he loved uh, the looseness, the dissipation of Fleet Street and the journalists, certainly to begin with, they may have kind of sniggered behind their hands at him putting his picture all over the mirror and so on. But he did a number of rather clever things uh, which made him very popular. He reinstigated this um, convention at the mirror, whereby, which was responsible for the fact that the mirror had the biggest, highest alcoholism uh, level in Fleet Street, that every week this elderly man would push it in a kind of once white linen jacket, would push a trolley of bottles around the editorial floor and hand out to each member of the editorial staff their alcohol allow allowance. And it was considerable. And they had a little fridge to keep it in as well. And here we come to another question about Maxwell, which is why, why is he so vilified? I mean, yes, he did a terrible thing. There's no question about that. And yet you can come across serial killers that have had a better press than Maxwell. And I think one of the reasons is that journalists hate missing a good story. And at the mirror, they were literally sitting on top of one for years. Maxwell had been taking money out of the pension funds and nobody realized it. And when belatedly they did, they turned on him with terrible ferocity and everyone else followed suit. And when Maxwell dies in 1991, world leaders queue up to play tribute to him. And they all say what a terrific guy he was and what a great humanitarian and so on. And two weeks later, the same people are saying what a dreadful man he was, how they always knew there was something fishy about him and so on. And as I said to begin with, the prism you have to look at Maxwell through is his family. And Ian Maxwell told me a story about coming in this, towards the end of his father's life. He came into Headington Hill Hall, into his father's bedroom, and Maxwell had a kind of early flat screen TV mounted on the wall. And his father was standing there with his nose pressed up against the glass. And Ian said, what are you doing? And on screen was this footage of newsreel footage of Jewish people being unloaded from trains at Auschwitz with some of them 
been sent off directly to the gas chambers and some of them being deemed fit for work. And Maxwell straightened up, turned around and said, I'm looking to see if I can spot my parents. And whatever you think of Maxwell, it seems to me that that's a desperately poignant story. And in many respects, his life is like this morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. Money, sex, power, booze, everything he could do to fill this kind of aching void he stuffed in, as it were, and nothing was ever enough. And it's for this reason that although Maxwell unquestionably caused a lot of people a lot of misery, perhaps, just perhaps, the most miserable and tragic figure of all was Robert Maxwell himself.